new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black and uh, very happy to be here podcasting. This is uh, what we love to do and we love to talk to people. We love to talk to uh, people that have uh, stories and, and, and people who want to talk to us. Uh, and again, it's a beautiful day to do that. Uh, so in today's podcast, we have with us Gary Allen Shockley, and he is an award-winning artist, author, and grief counselor living in Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. He has two master's degrees, one in theology and another in spiritual formation and counseling. Gary has served as a pastor and a professional healthcare chaplain aligned with two inpatient hospice units in North Carolina where he worked with dying patients and their families. From decades of walking alongside people in their journeys of dying and death and supporting children in their grief, Gary published his most recent children's book, My Heart Sings a Sad Song. Gary has also authored three books focused on leadership and spiritual development and five other children's books. Gary, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to new people from around the world. So where are you located these days? Uh, this uh, Boiling Springs is in South Central Pennsylvania, rolling farmlands. I'm looking out my window and all I see are hills and trees right now. Oh, awesome. wow. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah nature. Yeah. We, we just had someone on that talked about the beauty of nature in his life. Is that something that you find relaxing in these times? Do you go out to, to nature a lot? I do. I'm, I like to fly fish and one of the premier fly fishing streams in Pennsylvania is about a mile from my house, which is awesome. And whenever I can, I'm outside on our back patio. It's an open space with um, bird feeders and all kinds of little woodland creatures. Um, yeah, I get myself, re my soul gets recalibrated when I'm outside in nature. That's funny you say that because we just had uh, a fly fisherman on. His name was uh, John Deesh. And uh, yeah, it was such incredible and very interesting to, to learn about the uh, inner workings of that hobby slash uh, I guess lifelong pursuit uh, because you know me and Dr. Black we we don't fly fish so it was really cool to hear him talk about it and yeah he talked a lot about the calmness the what it brings to him obviously it's brought a lot into his life but uh, yeah really funny that you say that <laughs> so there's two fly fisher people out in the world that you've met that's, that's <laughs> and, awesome. and 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 we just happen to have them on pretty much like you know close to, <laughs> close together there's a sign <laughs> you, you gotta you learn have it. to name your you're going to have to name your podcast something else. <laughs> <laughs> the Outdoors Podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's funny. And so when you look at your life, because I'm looking at sort of your bio, and I see that you really got into the pastoral care and working with the hospice. Was that something that you um, were really looking to do? Or is that just something that came out after you finished all your education? Way early in my life, I've always been drawn to helping people. Even as a child, I was a strange kid. I would, uh, Milton, Delaware is where I grew up, and I would wander the streets up and down Pine Street, and I'd visit all the widows and widowers, um, and nobody told me to. I just felt like they probably needed company. And so, you know, people observing that said either two things. He's a really weird kid, or maybe he's being called to be a pastor. Mm. So that was kind of sown in me or nurtured in me for a while, but my, my real desire was to be a full-time artist. Um, so very quickly... In high school, I had applied for an art scholarship to Kutztown University in Pennsylvania, and they were taking one person out of the entire state of Pennsylvania schools who, and people who applied for this. 
And I worked all year on putting the profile together, um, portfolio and stuff, and I got selected. Um, and I turned it down. <laughs> it's what I always wanted to do. And I, I thought, no, I think I need to do this pastor thing. So um, out, of, out of high school, I started serving a church as a teenager in the inner city of Harrisville, Pennsylvania. But as life would have it, art and my ministry kind of melded together, kind of knit themselves together as a fabric. And the longer I've been invested in um, you know, life itself, the more I'm seeing these two things go hand in hand. I mean, they're two sides of the same coin. I can no longer pull them apart. So writing and painting and drawing and, and still being involved in um, people care, you know, through, as a pastor and then through hospice, kind of um, kind of emerged to create this wonderful life that I'm that I'm living right now. It's amazing. Wow, that's really cool to hear. You know, it seems like you really, as an artist, you know, you're in tune with yourself in tune with your emotions and you carried that with you and and you know every, people have varying interests and and directions that they want to go in in life and it's very interesting that at a young age you kind of knew that even though you you like this aspect of art and you like you know artistry and being an artist you felt that you wanted to kind of gear move towards uh the pastor element of taking care of people and being compassionate which is, you know, obviously, hey, that's that's re kudos to you for, for for catching that early and understanding that. Well, thank you, and and it did lead. I think the question that you asked me, and I I never, I don't know that I answered it, but it led me eventually into hospice, which I would call pastoral ministry on steroids, pastoral <laughs> care on steroids. I'm not sure there's anything more difficult in life than to tend to people with life-limiting illnesses that, you know, end up becoming uh, terminal illnesses and walking with them, you know, through the final stages of their lives, helping them to make meaning of life and even make meaning of suffering and death and then the care for their families. But again, I said in the beginning of this, I'm, I'm somewhat of a strange person and that I, I tend to gravitate toward that rather than run away from it. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Uh, pastor on steroids, and, and I'm thinking, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because you're essentially dealing with that in real time. Like, if, if you're, I guess, if you're, if you're, you know, healthy and and doing well, and, and also religious, uh, you know, you can kind of talk about death, and you can talk about sickness, and you can talk about all that, but until you face it. And, and those emotions and, and all that comes along, that's when someone like you comes in, you know, really valuable to kind of help these people and explain things like a medic at a, at a car crash. Like, you're, you know, apparently you're dealing with it as it happens. I like that. I like the metaphor that you shared in that. And I think it is kind of a, it, it is sort of like a medic. There's an urgency and an immediacy and um, no opportunity to turn and look away. You know, you just, you're running for the crash or you're running through to a patient's bedside to help care for them and whatever it is they're struggling with. Um, and it is, for me, it is, it is, it is a most sacred thing <clears throat> to be with another person as their life, um, as we know it physically is ending. Uh, and as they're wrestling with, where do I go from here? And it, it really was all of that that led to even this book that I that I just wrote that you mentioned. My heart sings a sad song. 
Yeah, we're going to talk about your book soon enough, but I still uh, want to talk a little bit more about what, like, the people that you care for, and what are the, the some of the common questions that or common concerns that they have that you've noticed along all these years you've been sitting with them. You know, that's a good question. One of the most interesting observations I would make is that very few people who are dying want to talk about dying. They'll talk about unfinished tasks. They'll talk about the people in their life that they're going to leave behind. Uh, they're talk, they do talk about, you know, um, they reflect back on their life and try to try to find some meaning in their journey, hoping that something they did left a legacy. Uh, they, you know, they want to be surrounded by family and friends. Nobody really ever has said they want to die alone. I, I'm sure somebody has, but I haven't met that person yet. If anything, their greatest concern might be not even so much of, am I going to go to heaven when I die, but is this going to hurt? Is it going to hurt more? Is, is the dying process painful? And of course, I, I can't answer that. I've never died, right? <clears throat> I can share my observations, but um, everybody does it in their own way. I think that's interesting. They don't talk about death too much. Yeah. You know, like I, 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 that, I, if I was dying, I, that's probably a topic I would want to talk about. It's the, the, <laughs> it's the elephant in the room. Like that's, 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 it's here. Yeah. That's very, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and as a interfaith chaplain, you don't want to bring your agenda into the room, right? I don't want to say, Hey, you know, you ought to be talking about dying right now. <laughs> What's wrong with you? It's, I mean, it's, was this it's what like you expected? You're getting really close, but you know, the whole, the whole, uh, wondering are the streets really going to be saved of gold? You know, am I going to see people that I left behind? Is, is God going to be there? Um, is there going to be food? Um, honestly, I think those are things we think about when we're, when we're healthy and, and maybe we ponder, you know, the afterlife. But when somebody is staring death in the face, so to speak, uh, and the seriousness of it comes, there is, there's more of the sense of relational connection. I just want to know that I'm still connected to people here and there are people with me and I'm not, and I'm not going to take this next step alone. So the energy goes, I think the energy goes that way. It goes to the present rather than even to the next moment of the future. If that makes any sense at all. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that it's, do you think, or what do you think that is? Do you think that's like, for me, is it, it seems like it might be like an overwhelming fear of the unknown that big question mark that we've all kind of knew that it was it was it's it's a part of our life and then just maybe at the end it just it builds and builds and and people just are like well i i'll let me just talk about what i do know and that's the, my present mm. and the people around me what do you think that is I, you know I, I don't have a clear answer on that but i could just share that I think um, when people are, are, are that close to dying, there's a sense of resignation, there's a sense of yielding, there's a, there's a sense of surrender. I think up until that moment, we are wired to fight for life. Everything in us is about survival. It's the way we've been hardwired through evolution and everything else. I mean, we, we want to survive. And there comes a point at which the pain is so intense or the struggle has been so fierce and you're just so exhausted that you're just ready to surrender and even, even not fully knowing what's you're surrendering to. And so there's, there's a sense of relief. You know, I've talked to people who had no concept of God, 
Um, and people who had a very strong concept of God, and they both seem to kind of die the same way, the sense of surrendering to the unknown. Um, what's going to happen next? What am I going to feel? What's going to be there? It's almost like in some ways, maybe it doesn't matter as much. I'm ready for it because being here and, and suffering what I'm suffering with right now and knowing what it's doing to my family, in some ways, anything has to be better than this. And if I can't live and recover, then I, I just, um, I'd rather just be out of it. I'd rather just, for, I'd rather for it to just be over. Now, I, you know, I'm probably oversimplifying that, but these are my observations anyway. Other people will have different observations. Um, but when I've been with people, and I've been with hundreds of people, uh, as a hospice chaplain, I'd have two or three people a day die in a 12-patient inpatient unit. So a very small group of people, but the worst of the worst of the worst cases of whatever disease um, they were struggling with. And so sometimes two to three people a day would die. You add that up over a year, that's a lot of people. And sitting at their bedsides, oftentimes I was the only person in the room. Family, family had stepped away or maybe they didn't have any family. A lot of people really do die alone. Um, and I would, you know, part of my job was to just be there to comfort, to kind of tend uh, to their stuff, um, and just watching the moment as they yield to death, so to speak, um, as they give themselves over, such a tremendous sense of peace, com composure even changes on their faces. There's this sense of um, almost like a deep exhalation of, you know, struggling for breath, and all of a sudden this heavy sigh and and um, peacefulness, serenity of sorts. That's beautiful. I'm glad you could be there for them in their their time of need. I'm wondering, because of the pandemic, I know people aren't as connected to families and they can't sometimes be in the room with them. Do you see new challenges for those dying now? Yeah, I think that's been the worst part of this. Is, um, and the medical staff, uh, people that I know have just been amazing in having to step up to kind of be surrogate family members for some of their patients um, so that they're not alone. And you and I've seen on the newsreels, families sitting outside plate glass windows, you know, being able to look at their loved one, taping messages to the windows, being available as much as they can be, but not being able to walk in and hold their hand and touch. And that's so important is that, you know, that kind of physical contact. And it's heartbreaking. Um, it's heartbreaking for the person who's dying because, again, I think relationship is more important than, you know, what the next reality is going to be, having people with us. But also for the survivors and the grief work that comes out of that, I think is going to be even more important, don't you? Um, helping people tend to the fact that they couldn't physically say goodbye and hold the loved one's hand. I can't imagine the guilt that comes out of that, the sense of disappointment. Um, so yeah, I think, I think there's gonna be a lot of work uh, necessary um, when you got you know, millions of people around the world who are dying, the impact that has on, on a society and a culture and a family is just tremendous. Yeah, I think you, you definitely bring up a, a good point of the, the survivors. And as much as the individual may have died alone, um, they now have to live with the fact that that occurred and to someone they loved. 
and like yes they could see yeah. them but you're right that physical touch i wonder so that's it's going to be a new challenge for people and people like you who are helping the individuals on working through that which is you know it's it's going to be interesting i wonder i'm curious too like they, they may have more dreams of touching their loved ones like more dreams of uh grief dreams of you now touching because that's not really as common as just talking and so it could be more right. touch-filled dreams yeah to, you know what i think them. you're i think you're i think you're right about that i think we're gonna people are gonna work out some of that stuff in their sleep and uh hopefully in their dream in their dream life um which i think could help with a sense of closure whatever that really means i don't think we ever fully gain closure in grief uh, I think we adjust to it, but it is something that we carry with us. It becomes a part of our, it becomes etched on our psyche and, and I think even in our DNA. Um, and I, you know, I think, you know, I mean, for me, that's my focus right now has been mostly on children too. You know, they're the forgotten mourners of our, of our culture's death system. The death system that we have in the United States, we still live in a, a pretty deep sense of denial, try to hide death or make it softer. And we shelter our children from it. And I don't think our children can be sheltered from this because of everything that's going on around us. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, no, you're absolutely right. I think, I think a lot of times, you know, we see a child and we're like, ah, oh, happy go lucky. You know, they're just doing their thing, playing with cartoons, you know, listening to music, playing with other kids. And we don't understand that they're taking in information just like us, if not more. Sometimes, you know, children are really active and smart and their brains are growing. So, you know, and you got to be aware of that, that they're taking in mm -hmm. information. They're hearing things. They got amazing hearing. <laughs> ask, any parent, ask any parent. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and we got to explain these things and have these conversations. Like my neighbor, their child, he's, um, I think he's eight. He was, uh, what is his pet snail died. He had a snail and, and it died. And, you know, um, his mother had a conversation with him about it and he was sad. And, uh, but yeah, it was, that's good to see. It's good to see that people are willing to have those talks and, uh, you know, related to the death that's going on during these times. Um, you know, you got to include them in, in, in that grief process and understand what's going on with them. And it can give them the space and and honor their space enough to allow them to ask their questions. And even if you don't have an answer to say, I, I don't I don't know, but to assure them, you know, we're here with you. I love you. You're safe. Uh, we're we're going to we're going to find our way through this. But I, I, I just remember growing up. You know, if, if death was talked about, it was always in hushed tones mm. away from the children, you know, and if. Yeah. And if you had a serious conversation, you made sure the kids were somewhere else, you know, because you thought, well, they can't be a part of this. And, and again, we have to be careful. We don't we don't overwhelm our children with stuff. But at the same time, we can't shelter them from all of it and the reality of it. It's just not going to be healthy. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because if you go back to even just like <clears throat> some hospices have like essential visitors that are allowed inside and children are usually never the essential visitor. It's usually an adult of some sort and so right. now you're taking out another layer that may have helped them and so they're probably going to have be even more disenfranchised in the sense of you know the the reaction 
to all of this that we're just, you know, sometimes maybe we're not thinking about as much because we're so focused on maybe the adults and helping Mm -hmm. them process. But you're right. Like I'm starting to look now. I'm like, well, what are we doing to help the children? Like Mm -hmm. through this time when it comes to those who are dying? Because I know it's hard to go to like funerals now are different. Like you can't, not everyone can go. Right. And so maybe there's online stuff. So like now we're almost like we're going almost backwards in the sense of we're taking them away from funerals, taking away from the dying. And we we spent so much time trying to like do the opposite for, for the last couple of years. And so now it's like the, the, the pandemic has forced it to go the opposite way. Do you see, do you see that in your, your area too? Man, that's a, that's a great insight. That's a great observation. I think you're right. You know, the zoom call funeral services, memorial services, um, you know, everything, everything virtually or remote, um, We've already we already don't like to be around death as a culture. And so now, uh, you know, the pandemic has allowed us and given us permission to really take a big step backward <laughs> to stay even further away from it and legitimize it. It's OK to do this virtually. And, I, you know, I have friends of mine who are funeral directors and the whole funeral industry has changed dramatically in the last decade. Uh, you know, direct cremations are it's almost half now. People prefer to, for their loved one to go right from a hospice or a morgue or a hospital right to a crematorium. Um, and depending on the state law in terms of how long they have to hold them before they can cremate them. So it's almost like they die and they're, and the next thing you get is a box of ashes back, right? It's like, it's desensitizing to the point where we don't have to deal with it at all if we don't want to. Um, and I wonder, you're right. Or, is there is there going to be this new thing of virtual funerals now where people are just going to say, well, that's good enough. I don't have to, I don't have to dress up and I don't have to drive to go to this thing. I could do it from my home or my recliner in the living room. Mm. What a thought. Yeah. And how it affects the children that we, that we're, that we're raising. Seriously. It's, because you'd think the experience itself is the learning tool. But if you're staying at home, I think a lot of that lesson, it's uh it downgraded a lot. Yeah, and especially yeah. people who didn't have those conversations anyways at home, at least they had the funeral that they could explain and have that ritual healing going on or something. Now, if yes. if, if they don't have that and they're not coming back home, cuz I'm like, okay, let's say you do the virtual funeral. If you come back home with your own family and you have uh a time to honor those that individual that's passed you know you talk about it you tell stories that would be helpful for children but it, uh, a lot of people probably won't do that as well and that's uh that's very unfortunate um you know there and there's a lot of people you know let's not exclude those people who definitely want to have funerals or want to go to those things sure um sure. There's, there's a segment of those people as well but uh yep. it, it's absolutely it's, it's changing a lot and we might not yeah. actually fully understand the significance of it all until maybe five, 10 years down the road where you hear about when you see the behavior and you see the challenges that they, they faced that you may not get right now. Like you might not be able to hear about right now. Yeah. We kind of like a, 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 yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, we talked to obviously a lot of people about that, their losses, the deaths that they've had in their lives. And it's very interesting because the things people say are, are, simple but important like you know having last words with their loved ones 
or going to the casket and you know placing an object uh, like a painting or, or a flower or something in the casket or um uh, i mean there's lots lots of different things and moments that people really if they've had them they cherish but if they haven't they actually regret it like oh i wish i wish i got to you know talk to you know my grandfather or grandparent or, or whoever uh that one last time or i wish uh i i got to actually witness their death instead i i was uh traveling and i couldn't yeah yeah and then, and it's and then the, the moment is gone um you know it's lost and we can't recover it and i think you know everything you guys are talking about <laughs> i think you're right on in in a non covid world um when we could gather in a funeral home or a church or in, in a house in some places in our country so people still doing funerals at home i did that as an early pastor my gosh we had most of our funerals from the home in the appalachian mountain areas of the united states so there was a you know you were you were close to death it was like part of the culture and life and funeral homes kind of mediated that kind of helped families with it churches and synagogues the religious institutions were there to kind of provide guidance and direction could have saying you know hey it might be good if you invited your children to do this in preparation for it but the further our society seems to be getting away from those things we've relied on where does the guidance come from now you know who's who's providing ideas or even resources about how to do this well how to grieve well because yeah yeah and and you know like like you guys were talking about uh, you know, there has been a movement towards getting away from the clinical, you know, uh, aspect of funerals and rituals uh, before, obviously, you know, COVID kind of uh, put an end to that briefly, hopefully. But yeah, there was a movement. And I just thought of this. It's like being a part of the death as it's happening, being a part, inviting death to your to your ceremony rather than, you know, uh, putting leaving it into the hands of a few people like if if someone's giving a woman's giving birth being a part of that life moment you know you're in the mm -hmm. room you're a part of that rather than standing outside or not even in the hospital that's you're witnessing and a part of those moments even if obviously even if you're not the person giving birth you're still witnessing life you know and that's what a funeral would be is like witnessing death maybe washing the body maybe you know, uh, viewing uh, the person one last time. These are all mm -hmm. uh, in inviting death in. But mm -hmm. often we leave it in the hands of a few professionals. And even now during these times, even more, leave it in the hands of a few professionals. But that's distancing us from that uh, experience. Yeah. And you, you had mentioned a snail in the beginning of, of the podcast. And I think oftentimes the loss of a pet is the first experience that we have uh, in death. Um, and, and I certainly remember, remember that. And I look back on some of my fish being flushed down the toilet thinking that probably wasn't a good plan for my dad to kind of help me deal with the death of a pet. <laughs> but, you know, with cats and dogs that we had, if we had a pet that died, we had to bury them in the backyard. And so we made a box and, you know, we, we had a little service and we uh, interred this little creature into the earth. And I remember in, on Pine Street in Delaware, 
there was a certain section of a field behind our house. It was like our own little uh, mini miniature pet cemetery. That's where all of our little critters went to go and and uh, and and be placed. Um, there was something I think really healthy about that. You know, there it was this sense that there's life and there's death, and life and death go hand in hand. There isn't life that's just like never ending. There is a there is a a cycle. Um, we see it. On the, in the earth when, uh, when winter comes or fall and the changing of the leaves. And if we, if we open our eyes, we see death all around us. Uh, if we're willing to do that, if we're willing to embrace it as part of the miracle of life that we enjoy um, all the time. Um, and I think it makes us appreciate life even more when we come, uh, when we step a little closer to death and begin to understand it and, and maybe become a little bit more okay with it as part of the reality of what it means to be human. It changes how I appreciate the moment and the people around me and the air that I breathe. And without that, if we sanitize life and we, rem we remove death far from us, we don't have that balance. And I think that could really mess us up. Definitely. And I was actually really curious to, uh, to figure out or to try to understand like why, like what your experience with death was as a child because you wrote a book for children mm -hmm. and I was you'd think that it must have been part of your life in some way and so were, were pets either your only loss or your first loss as a child wow you know what I I was trying to think of things like this that you would ask me and I just had a memory come back that I wasn't even thinking about um wow and powerful too <clears throat> speaking of Milton Delaware I lived there up until the fourth grade, so I was I was an infant and a kid in that neighborhood. And I remember, I think my first experience with death was with a dog, uh, a black dog that I think, now that I reflect back, must have gotten hit by a car. And it had enough energy to crawl back into the woods that we called it, you know, our, our little woodland area. And I remember playing back there and coming across this dog, and it's its back end was disfigured and it was very much alive and whimpering. Um, and when I saw it, it, it seemed pleased to see me. <clears throat> so for the longest time, you know, I think I told my, <clears throat> excuse me, I think I told my father about the dog and he basically said, well, you know, you better leave that thing alone. You don't, you don't where it's been and all that. And of course I didn't obey that. Uh, so I would sneak scraps from the table and I would sneak off to the woods and I would feed this dog and I would bring water and all and this went on for um several days and i remember going back at one point and the de the dog had died and i just sat and sobbed uncontrollably because i i think i felt somewhat responsible that um, i couldn't fix it and i maybe i didn't bring it enough food maybe i didn't bring enough water and this poor animal died and um so i went home and got a shovel and unbeknownst to my father you know buried the dog out there in the woods I think that, in my memory, is might might be my first experience of death. Wow! Um, and thanks yeah. for bringing that up, by the way. That's <laughs> <laughs> what so, so we do here on the podcast. <laughs> um, I think that's that's so beautiful. I'm actually so touched. How old were you? Do you remember? Oh, I was probably. I'm gonna say six or seven, maybe. What? A, yeah. What a loving and compassionate like child you were. Oh, my God. Like, I'm thinking, I'm just like, that's so, be I've never, I don't know if I had an opportunity, if I would have done it like that when I was a child. 
but you did. And I think that that says a lot to like who, what your spirit was way back then. And mm. then, and who you are now, but you know, it, your heart sang a sad song, you know, like that day. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Nice and, connection there. Yeah. You like that? It's a good transition. I like that. <laughs> good transition. Yeah. 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 And my heart so, did sing a sad song. Yep. Yeah. And did you ever talk about it with everyone, anyone, or was this that's your own memorial that you had for it? You buried it and then you left it at that. That was, that was it. I was alone. Um, it was, it was me and the dog. And like I said, you know, my father more or less said, I, you know, I don't want you, I don't want you near the dog. And he didn't know if it had rabies. And, um, I wish he would have come and maybe he offered, but I don't remember, you know, an offer to come with me to check on the dog. I was just kind of admonished to leave it alone. So yeah, when I buried it, um, took the shovel back, uh, that was kind of it. It was kind of a, as I recall, it was pretty much a solitary journey. Um, but obviously, you know, I'm 63 years old and I, you just helped to evoke this in incredibly powerful memory from back when I was, what, six years old. That's a long time. It's amazing what we forget and what, what triggers things to come up again. It is. Absolutely. You know? It and is. So yeah. What a powerful moment in time. And, and th these are the things that we're talking about, like, moments that you want to be around for like what are the uh -huh. most important moments you want like a, sean was saying like a birth you know everyone would say like a graduation or a wedding the death of someone is one of the most important things and you didn't even know the dog which is you know like no. but you cared so much for it and so it just shows like there's just something special in you right from the beginning and you really had to work through that stuff yourself and you did and you led you to this sort of path so when it comes to your book you, I can understand the significance of it with children. So for you, what's the, the message for, like, that you wrote your book, right? So when, yeah. you, when you look at your book, what's the message that comes out of that for children? Yeah, and, 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 I, and I think your question had an insight that I'm going to carry around with me for a while because I've, I've written several books. And I honestly, even though I thought I wrote this book for children who are grieving, <laughs> it's obvious I wrote the book for myself, too, at mm -hmm. some level. I think we, we write about things we know or care about. Um, and maybe have a personal relationship with. And maybe the book for me is somewhat of a wish, uh, maybe an unfulfilled wish at times. And, and the, the book really flows. I, I've talked about it in terms of um, it's a book about love and space. It's a book about this rabbit whom I've named Jojo who loses uh, someone he loves or she loves to death. I wanted the book to be gender neutral and I didn't want it to be uh, um, only focused on one culture. So I decided to go with rabbits. <clears throat> so Jojo, you know, experiences a death is the beginning of the story. And um, in his expressions or her expressions of, of wrestling with that through grief, it's just kind of question after question. And, the interesting thing is the people in the story, the, the other characters, the family and friends, the very first thing they do is they, they provide this character space to be able to talk about the way they're feeling and to ask very honest questions, you know, almost like asking questions of the sky, but also asking questions of the person who died. Were you ready to go? Did it hurt when you left me? Um, what's it like? Those are those are the kinds of questions we adults ask in certain ways too. So 
the loved ones provide the space, but they also provide, they, they surround this character with a, enough love to say, we're going to be with you in this. We don't want you to be alone. We don't want you to have to feed an injured dog and, <laughs> and bury it by yourself. We, we are here and we will cry with you. And in a book, we will dance with you and we will sing with you, but we will follow your lead in that. Um, so for me, it's an expression of what I would, I guess it's a wish that every person grieving would have the love and space that they need to do that well. And so the guide in the back of the book is a guide for adults to help find ways to create that kind of climate of expression, if you will. I love it. I think that's great. And it's a great message for parents and children who are going through something. And the biggest thing for parents is like, we don't talk about death. So we need these resources to help guide us. I'm glad you added that last piece to help parents understand how to sort of provide that space. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's phenomenal. I felt it was important. Um, for a lot, a lot of different ways. And I, and I utilize a friend of mine who's a social worker and, you know, she and I did some research or at least fine tuned a list of maybe 30 things down to just the short list in the back of the book of what would be the most important things, um, I could share with adults of grieving children to help them through this. And we you know, kind of settled on the eight, kind of like the top eight that are there. Um, and since the creation of this book, I went a little bit further. I created a feeling chart. It's called Feeling Your Feels. And it's eight pictures of Jojo Bunny in diff- eight different expressions. And they're expressions of happy, sad, scared, um, you know, those kinds of things, basic emotions. And I'm, I'm now like, I put a copy of that in the book. And it's for the most part a free gift for people to use so that they could actually with a child at the end of the day or during the day when, when maybe um, there's some emotional expression there that we don't really know what to deal with, to allow the child to name the expression or the, uh, to name the feeling or the emotion by pointing to the chart, I feel like this, right? And then ways for adults to be able to invite the child to talk about that um, and kind of clarify the emotion. I think sometimes we, we mislabel emotion. What we see as anger might, might really be fear. And if we're dealing with the anger and trying to help them with feelings of anger, when what, what they're really feeling is fear, we, we miss the mark. And I'm not sure that's terribly helpful. So the book is really about trying to provide, and I keep adding more and more resources to it. <laughs> as it's out there in the market, I keep thinking of other things. Um, but I want a resource to be in the hands of especially the forgotten mourners of our culture, children especially. Um, you know, yeah, I hope to really, that this is something that could be meaningful. It's not the end all of every book I've written, but I think it could be meaningful and a very helpful tool. Yeah, I, 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 think, uh, I think that's very meaningful, absolutely, um, including the uh, feelings chart. You know, it's just one of those things where I, I, I myself don't have children, but, you know, I was a ch- child at once and, and, you know, I can see you know, family, <laughs> families and still am, but I can, I can see families and ch- children all around me. And sometimes, uh, you know, you want to, as a parent, you're probably, it's very uncomfortable and you don't want to see your child hurt or feeling negative or feeling down. Right. 
So mm-hmm. it's like the remedy is always like, well, how do I change this? Well, let me get you an ice cream. Yeah. Let me let's watch a yeah. movie. Let's shift. Let's get you out of that zone very quickly. But I think the mm. critical element there is how is you're missing the talk. You're missing the conversation. You know, mm. and, and that's mm-hmm. so important to say, OK, you're feeling sad. Well, how, how how do you feel? What are you thinking about? What you know, this and that. And then tools for parents is, is excellent to give them the tools to know what to do and give and and by allow giving parents that tool they're giving their children the freedom to express not only positive but also negative feelings which is so important because if, mm-hmm. if you, you know it's so important to that development of that child to be able to feel safe to be sad or angry or frustrated you know because in, in a lot of situations kids might not feel okay displaying those emotions because the parents react a certain way. And, uh, you know, it's not very helpful, especially in uh, conversations about grief and uh, death. Yeah. And so, so as you're talking, you know, I picture, I picture parents and adults sitting with a child, maybe using this resource or finding other resources to, to have those, those important conversations. And I think maybe when an adult gives themselves over to a conversation like this with a child they love, it's helping them as, as adults to process some unresolved or unprocessed grief in their own lives. I, I got a note from um, a 53-year-old woman. I get so many letters from adults who are saying, thank you for writing this book. You may not have intended it to be for me, but, you know, I lost a... Um, a person who was kind of a surrogate mother to me 10 years ago, so they were 43 at the time. I was raised in an abusive home, and it was it was an aunt that raised me and rescued me from that, and she died, and I've never been able to get over it. I've never, fi- I've never been able to find my way through it. And your book has just been a tremendous resource in inviting me to, to understand my feelings and to actually feel them and know it's okay to feel them and to be able to share that with other people. And... I can't tell you how many stories like that I'm getting. And it's like, yeah, I know this was written for children, but I think we are children, no matter how old we are. We are somebody's child. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we, we have our inner child. And if we haven't dealt with those issues or come to terms with, you know, uh, how we were brought up and taught, like if you're you're a parent, an adult, and you're uncomfortable around fear and you're not able to you want to run from things and you're not able to deal with it properly. You're just going to raise a child who's like that because you think, right. and it's not your fault. You just think that's the way it is. You know, even you might not even be aware of how you go about it uh, and whether it's right or wrong, but that's just how it is. Like, well, you know, Timmy's had a Timmy sad. So let's go get him a happy meal uh, without talking about things. And that's because that's how my parents did it. And that's how we did it. And, and it just, it, and not really understanding right. in your own life as an adult how that's affecting you and and wow that's uh i think that's yeah. a, it's, it's great to hear that it's it's impacting adults in that way it is it's it, it uh it absolutely thrills my heart because as as you've uncovered from an early age early age i want to help people and even stray animals <laughs> and and uh you know, to think that somehow any of us as adults could become more helpful, especially to the vulnerable people in our lives. 
and to hear stories of how that is helping because of something that I've done to help them. It just, it fills me full of incredible joy. <clears throat> it, bring, it, it just increases the sense of meaning for my own existence. Um, yeah. That's great. Well, we man. talk about some we talk about some deep stuff on this podcast, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Surprise, we got you. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. We, this, we, is <laughs> this is refreshing. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. It's it 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 it. refreshing. Good. I'm glad you're doing it. You know, and that's why we love doing it. We we have these deep conversations, which sometimes you can't have with friends or even in public, but in this platform. It's that safe space, as you're saying, to just hear each other out, listen and talk freely on how we're feeling. And so I think it's it's amazing what you're doing. I'm glad it is connecting with adults because you just never know what tool will work for you to really unlock that block from everything that you've been taught as a adult. And so there's a lot of books out there about feelings and emotions. And that person may have already read those or articles on grief never nothing opened but she read yours and for some reason it just took a different path inside of her and it opened everything and she found healing and that's why like you just don't know you don't know where that healing is going to come from and that's the mysteries of life which is you know which i love and so there's not like a straight path for everyone and that's why everyone's so essential in helping each other because we all have a different viewpoint on what we would need as you're saying um as a child or just what comes through us to to with the project that we have and it just has that impact on people so i'm happy you're you're feeling you're seeing the book have meaning in other people's lives because that's why you wrote it right that's right yeah absolutely and that's great thanks I yeah know, thank you you're the one that wrote it <laughs> you're doing you're doing the work and you're doing the work in the hospices too which is you know i it's funny because when you're talking and you mentioned about you know the strange the strange dog I'm like, isn't that, you know, really what a hospice is in a way? It's strangers that are dying and you're there to help them and sit with them. And it was a strange, it was was a stranger that was a dog. And it's just like, you can see that theme, right? It's just like, it doesn't matter who someone is. If they're dying, you're there for them. And I think that's just for me, that really warms and opens my heart. And it almost brings me to tears. So like for you to be like that, because that I wish everyone was like that, but they're not. And so you're definitely a, a gem in this world. And so I'm glad you are who you are and you're doing what you're doing. Well, thank you. I, gosh, man, you're making me feel good. <laughs> it's funny. Like my, my sons, I have a 30 year old and 27, 31 and 27 year old sons. And every time we get together, they're like, are we going to have to talk about death again? Because <laughs> like, they hear the stories and they know the impact of those stories that they have on me. And of course I want to share them. But they're like, yeah, you know, there are times when we really don't want to talk about that. <laughs> like, okay, I get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's right. Like, everyone has their time to right. want to know about it. And sometimes at the end of life, and sometimes even at the end of life, they don't want to talk about it. So yeah. it's just, it's when you find those people, it's a refreshing conversation. So I'm curious, and, and, have you yeah. ever, um, like within your practice, have you heard people talk about dreams? Like either your clients or those who are dying of their loved ones. How much time do we have left on the podcast? (laughs) (laughs) As long as you need, we're here for you. (laughs) Again, you know, my, 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 my whole life, uh, we're talking hundreds and hundreds. And wow. You know, as I was even reflecting on who I'd want to talk to, I couldn't believe the number of of people that, um, you know, moved through my mind. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to share this one and I'm going to try and do it without crying because this is so impactful 
when I was doing my clinical training and an internship in palliative care at a hospital, I got hooked up with a patient whose name was Tamala. And, and I, the only way I remembered her name is I'd say, Tamala, rhymes with Tamala, you know, and then, and at first she didn't want to see a chaplain. She wouldn't have anything to do with me. And I would just stop in and say, hey, just wanted to see if you want to talk. And finally she gave in and said, yeah, I really do. I really want to talk to you. Um, she was 38 years old, African-American woman, blind, several illnesses, comorbidities. Um, the worst of it all was necrotizing gangrene. Um, I don't want to gross the listeners out, but I would sit with her and she would pick at her fingers and parts of her fingers would literally fall off. And I thought, how can a human being endure this? And then I learned from her that um, she had she had she had lost seven biological children in her short lifespan, stillbirth, um, some from violence, from abuse, from boyfriends, um, you know, that triggered a um, early birth. Um, a woman who was just broken in so many ways, but really had a, had a very strong personal faith. And um, I remember coming into a room one day and she was, she was just beside herself and the nurse said, boy, I'm really glad you're here, Gary, because she had some terrible dreams last night. Maybe you can help her. And I do mindfulness exercises and guided meditation with, with people. And I asked her to tell me about it. And in her dreams, um, she actually had a, a visualization of death, um, um, this form who would, in her dreams, would steal all of her children and hide them from her. And she would try and get around death. I mean, you can, you can get the, the flow of this find her way around death and in order to in order to rescue her children and she couldn't and then in her dream she would get trapped inside a casket and begin to suffocate and she would hear the cries of her children outside the casket and could not get to them and this is just horrific right so i'm you know i'm like okay god you got to help me with this one um and i and i just started to unpack that with her a little bit and i and I just asked her to close her eyes and I invited her into visualization. And I said, um, you know, what's, what is the, the most comfortable, uh, safe room you've ever been in in your life? And sadly, she described the room that she was in in the hospital. I said, so this is the room that makes you feel safest and most comfortable. Yes. Okay. Visualize yourself in this room. And um, she believed in God. I said, so... Can you can you visualize God in the room with you? Yes. And she and I said, can you describe God to me? And she did. And I, I went home and painted the painting. <laughs> she wasn't able to see it, but I, I had to get the image out and I still have it. Um, and I asked her to visualize her children. You know, where were they sitting? What were they wearing? What did they look like? What was their response to her when she came into the room? Um, you know, what was God's response to her when she came into the room? There were other loved ones and family members there. And she had the sense of joy and, and reunion and celebration. And I said, do you think when you have these other dreams, do you think you might find yourself back in this room? Do you think you can get to this room? She said, I, I think so. And I said, well, try that next time it happens. So the next time when I came back to, to visit with her, she was sitting up and she was actually eating meal. And she said, I am so glad you're here. I said, really? She goes, ah. Oh, I spent last night with God and my children and my aunt and my nephew, and we had a good old time. <laughs> I said, where were you? She said, I was in, I was in this room in, in my dream. I, I was able to, 
when death came after me again, I was able to find myself in another place. And she was released from the hospital and about a week later died. And a family member contacted me through the hospital to say, <clears throat> when she was taking her last breath, somebody said, are you okay? She said, tell Chaplain Gary, I'm in the room. It's going to be okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so sad. Unbelievable. That's wow. Just absolutely beautiful. What? And she and died in peace. Yeah. <laughs> what an experience and, and way to be able to work through such a dream. Because a lot of people may have froze and maybe even changed the topic. But, you know, I think it's great that you sat with her and you talked about it with her. And you found a way, whatever the way it was, it may not work for everyone, but it worked for right. her. And that in itself brought her so much peace. Wow. And it would have worked through, because not only her dream would have changed, but also it would have worked through a lot of the emotions she had, not only with death, but also with the grief from her children that she probably mm. felt some guilt or helplessness in mm -hmm. and it, mm -hmm. for her to have that imagery there would have been a piece that would have been brought in to that area of her life also fascinating and they and they were all together when she died wow you know she found a way to gather all of them together um obviously she made an impression on my life i will never forget her well it's it's such a it's so hard to listen to but so important and and that overall, I think, is what 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 describes what grief and death is. It's, it's yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's hard, but it's so important and vital. And I'm uh, I appreciate listening to that story. Like just thinking about the light that she had, Tamala, and the only room that room that she happened to be in was the safest, most comfortable spot. That's a that's tough to listen to. But again, you know. You're able to help her through that and, and leave her with something. Give her that opportunity to see near the end that peace and, and obviously the joy in having her children around her and being uh, with God in that room. And, and her obviously appreciating enough to, to, during her last moments, say that, you know, tell Gary mm. this. Mm. Yeah, that's incredible. Mm. Yeah, we, we made a really strong connection. She was in the hospital, I think, almost two months. And so um, it, it was an internship, so I wasn't there every day. But every day I was there at least twice a week. You know, I spent a good amount of time with her. And I think what was <clears throat> really important for me, too, is that as she was describing uh, the other dream, you know, being in the room, like the hospital room and all that, um, I asked her to describe herself. And she described what she was wearing and she described uh, the shoes on her feet. And she had actually had um, one foot completely amputated during the time I knew her and half of another foot um, actually up to her knee and had only two fingers left. But but in the dream, she saw herself completely whole uh, and, a, and a very healthy, vibrant person. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that's very interesting. Good question. That's a very good question to ask her. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you said it, it's one of those things where you're in a moment. I mean, nobody wants to be in a moment like that. And 
probably every part of every fiber of my being wanted to find a way out of the room. And that was true of every difficult patient I've ever had is how do I avoid this? And I've had, uh, there have been times I've had to go to the bathroom and put my hands on the sink and look in the mirror and remind myself who I am and why I do what I do and what it is I value and then order my next steps in order to follow that path, not the path of fear. And, um, and I've learned in my life that as long as I do that, I align my values with my behavior and an understanding of who I am and why I exist. It'll get me, it'll, it'll get us through a lot of stuff, uh, that fear would otherwise get in the way of. We would, we'd back away from everything fearful if we had our wishes, but if we are determined based on our values to align our behavior around that, it's amazing what we can do. It really, really, really is. That's so true. Like even like doing this podcast or even doing like the talks that I do, I was not an extrovert individual, very shy, didn't feel comfortable talking, especially in front of others. And so doing this stuff has been, you know, you had to, I had to face my own fears, just even trying to raise awareness on this topic, even That's going sure. to do my PhD with stats and stuff. Not a fan, but I had to risk it all <laughs> to do something that I felt that was meaningful. And it's even though like throughout the process, you you have your doubts, you have your your moments where you just want to give up and turn to have that thing to to drive you forward through the fear. It's amazing when now you look back and you're like, wow, like I could have in like 300 different times turned around and I just kept putting my foot on the gas and I got through. And look what it's done, not just to myself and how it changed me, but also what it's giving to others because of that. And, and I think this is just a great, important lesson of, you know, like we, we all have fears. But it's like, can we, in a healthy way, move through them and face them? And what does that look like? And sometimes you need just really, you may only need that one person to give you that space to be able to talk about it for you then to move through it. Um, like with grief, right? Like it's hard to do by yourself, but with that one person, it changes everything. Absolutely. Yeah, to know that you're not in it alone. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you believe in God, to say, then I, I know that God is with me. <clears throat> but I think, you know, God in, a, in an incarnational form through another human being is always most preferable <laughs> rather than an idea of God. Um, and I, I, to know that there is somebody on the planet who believes in you they may not be in the room with you at, at the moment, but to know that other people believe in you. And so when you drive a stake in the ground saying, this is, this is who I am, what I'm called to do, and it matters that I do it well. Um, and I can conjure up people who would say, absolutely, that is who you are. We've seen it in you all along. We want you to do this. We, we're cheering you on. Gosh. And I, I feel for the people who can't identify that in their lives for one reason or another. Uh, it makes it so much harder to get through the challenges when you have to muster up all that energy and all that strength, that internal strength from within yourself and not be able to tap into someone else. Um, and I think all of us exist on the planet to be that for each other so that nobody suffers alone and nobody struggles alone. Nobody succeeds alone. <laughs> you know, we're in it together. So true. I love it. I love it. And so I'm curious if you've ever had your own grief dream at all of someone who has died or animal. I, I have. Um, 
there there are times when, uh, and I'm a prolific dreamer. I dream in Technicolor, very visual. I remember most of my dreams, and I have um, I have <laughs> I have lots of family members and friends that I've lost who who show up in my dreams to have conversations with me, and I find it incredibly heartening. Um, I, I don't know that I believe that that somebody is actually finding their way into my dream to have those conversations, but wherever it comes from, I just find it to be so encouraging. Um, I think that um, I'll pick one who was my best friend in the whole world. And about 10 years ago, <clears throat> in fact, he had sent me an email and uh, the night before, <clears throat> and that morning I was sitting in my office and I was sending a reply to my email. And as I was doing that, the phone rang a from a mutual friend of ours who said, are you sitting down? I said, I am. He said, well, Paul, Paul, Paul died. Paul who? Paul. And he told me his last name. I said, that's not possible. I'm, I'm writing a letter to him. He said, no, they found him. He was coming back. He was a football referee, part of his hobby. And he was coming back late at night, put off the side of the road, got out of the car and collapsed. And nobody found him until the next morning. He died of an aneurysm. Um, I was stunned. I, I remember leaving my desk and just walking around like a haze. I couldn't even, I couldn't even make sense of the world. I mean, he was, he was a brother in every sense of the word, even as a best friend, and he was a mentor. And, um, and there are still times. It's a, it's ten years later, and the other night I had a dream where Paul was in it, and, um, I remember just asking him a question, and the question is, do you do you think we're all going to be okay? And I wasn't even sure what the problem was that I was addressing in that. But do you think we're all going to be okay? And he said, well, how are you? And I said, I, I'm okay. And he said, then I think we're all going to be okay. <laughs> and that's all, that's all he said. <laughs> wow. And I thought, well, that's kind of odd. But, you know, there are so many times that I find myself thinking, I wish, I wish he were here. And we lived hours apart from each other, but I could always pick up the phone and call him with any kind of concern or any kind of support that I need. And he was always there and vice versa. And there are times I, I have an experience. I think I want to tell Paul, even 10 years later, it's like, he's not here. But then he shows up in a dream. Mm. And I've, I've had other friends early in life. Um, when I was in seminary, a classmate got killed in a car accident. I, I just, I, I was trying to make sense of that. And I remember he appeared in a dream. And he said, I want to tell you what death is like. And I invited him to do that. And he said, it doesn't hurt. And it's not dark. Um, and he said, I feel very much at peace. And that was really the gist of that dream. And I thought, well, isn't that pretty cool? Um, so I've had a lot of those with my, my mother and father-in-law, my mom, you know, my grandmother. Um, stop by every now and then or just kind of walk through as an extra on a set <laughs> of whatever play I'm in. Um, and there's a sense that I know that they're, I know that they're dead. I know that in my dream that they're not really there and yet they are there. And I just kind of smile and, and think, well, isn't this kind of cool? <laughs> Is that the kind of stuff you're talking about? Exactly what I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And I think it, it's amazing you have those experiences. I said, like, where, what they are, where they come from, who knows, right? And, you know, everyone has their own ideas. But it's amazing that you have them. 
and what they can do for you as you move forward and the encouragement sometimes they can bring. And I really like that one dream that Paul said when you were asking, are we going to be okay? And he asked, are you okay? And that has so much meaning. Like, I, I don't understand. Like, if, I don't know if people can see what I see, but it has, <laughs> has so much meaning. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, I got it too. You got it too. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, wow, like you're right. Like if you, if you're, if, yeah. if you can focus on you, there's so much stuff out mm. there, right? There's, especially now there's so much stuff going on outside, but if you're not healthy, you can't help any of those people. It's like, you need to be okay. And then the world has a chance, but if you're exactly. off tilter, right? Like there's no hope, but it starts with yeah. you. And I, I love that. And it's just like, Wow. I love how it's like such a short thing, but it's so powerful. You can't make this stuff up. It's, it's just like. <laughs> no, you can't. No, and, and you they would love. It going... <laughs> These okay. dreams are made for Twitter, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They don't have time. They don't have time. Yeah. They don't have the are characters. Be... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just concise. No, it's very clear and concise and beautiful. You know, essentially, it's like the kingdom of God is within you. you know? Right. And once you understand that and once you see the power within that, then you can, you know, the world is a different place. Yes. Yeah. And as long as the kingdom of God is within you, then wherever you are is the kingdom of God. Mm. So so it's like and I love I love that. It's it's we carry that with us. We're not separate from it. And so, you know, I, I work in church world, too. And, and I've, I've always believed that the church isn't a place you go to. The church is a person. The church is who we are out in the world. And that is we expand, not to get all religious on you and preachy, but we expand God's reach by by our living our lives in the world in faithfulness. It's like um, it changes things. And yeah, I got one more dream for you. Do you have time? Of course. <laughs> well, just checking. This was really powerful. And I, and I thought about it too. See, I was preparing for this and I went, wow, man, I, it made me do a trip down memory lane, but um, our first pregnancy, my wife's first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage and it was, it was painful because we, we struggled to get pregnant and we, and we did. And like a lot of folks, you know, you, you start painting the room and you start telling everybody about it and you start celebrating about the fourth month she miscarried and we drove home from the doctor and it was, it was terrible. It was just a terrible, terrible experience. And my focus was on my wife. And making sure that she was okay, and she's she's very strong. She's able to work through almost anything and put up with me in in the process. I never really processed what that meant to me. And about a year after this miscarriage, I had a dream where I was in a cemetery, and I was pastoring a church at the time. And on the ground in front of me was a white casket, about three feet long. You know, the casket shaped like the old timey. Western kind of casket. Um, and I remember um, opening the lid and in the casket in white satin was a little girl, a baby girl, um, very fair skinned, reddish blonde hair. And I knew in that dream that was my daughter. And I closed the, I closed the lid and I dug the hole in my dream. And I buried this child and, and just stood there at the grave. Um, and, and the dream was over. And it was a turning point for me 
I woke up in tears. And of course, the whole, that whole day just carried this around. But it, un, it uncorked um, something in me that allowed me finally to begin to grieve and to process the grief that I've been carrying and had not expressed in one form or another. Um, and that image, gosh, is just uh, indelibly marked on, on my mind of that child. Um, that was just so powerful and so healing for me. What an important dream to share. Because I think when it comes to disenfranchised grief, partners of miscarriages, even though miscarriages are disenfranchised mm. in itself, the partners are even more so. And a lot of the focus goes on the birth mother. And so for you, for you to share this, I think it's very important to understand that, you know, there's this grief within the partners that is really going to acknowledge for the most part. And so I'm so happy you had that dream. And it's kind of cool because I can connect it back to what we're talking about the sense of helping you feel the feels, you know, like yeah. it opened up what we didn't know was under everything. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's beautiful for me to hear because it's, it's why I love these dreams. It helps us reconnect with places and parts of ourselves that we've forgotten. I love it. And, I, and I'm so glad that you're, that you're investing yourself in that whole realm, because I think it is just so, so, so important. What you guys are doing is just, amazing um that's why i wrote to you when i when i tripped on you was i googling and found it and listened to the one podcast i thought boy this is just such a helpful thing such a such a helpful thing so thank you for that thanks we appreciate that the support and you know we're all led different ways and i'm glad this is helping some people and as we mm -hmm. continue to do it hopefully it helps more you know but it's just like when you have something that sits right with you in your heart you just keep moving with it and and you're just in wonder what's it doing you know what's it all for it's like your book you do it because you know it needs to be done and then you just sort of yeah. see sometimes you get to see it sometimes you don't on the effect it has on the world and people around you but you just do it because you know it needs to be done so i'm just happy that you're able to find us and that you're able to enjoy and then come on the show and, and it seems like you're having a good time and you're exploring a lot of topics that maybe you wouldn't explore in your everyday life because not everyone is talking about the subject and that's sort of the reason why we have it is to really open up conversation when it comes to not just grief and loss but also the dreams that you can have that seem to have a really impactful part of a lot of people's journeys hmm. well this is this has really been healing for my soul too in ways that um I'm gonna to have to I'm gonna to have to ruminate on on it for a while because there's it just it brought up some things that I haven't thought about for a while, um, and I appreciate that. And honestly, this is one of the best conversations I've had in a long, long, long time, and I appreciate that too. This has been so meaningful. Wow. Hey, that that sits that sits in my heart. So thank you for for those kind words. Uh, our last question that we always like to ask is if you could have a dream tonight of anyone who has died, what would that dream look like? Yeah, and I, I like that question. I saw that. Um, and honestly, that, and I thought of Paul, you know, the person I talked about, you know, are you okay? And I think with all the, all the turbulence in the world right now, um, and so many different, so many different expressions, that to be able to sit down with him over a beer or you know, a cup of coffee or whatever, and just, 
find out are we going to be okay <laughs> you know i need another visit paul i need to i just need another conversation are we, are we going to be okay <laughs> give me some assurance here that would be the dream that i'd want to have right now it's yeah, gonna be absolutely. funny because i can picture that and i can picture him saying what did i tell you the first time <laughs> <laughs> Exactly Dream ends, saying. you wake up, and you're like, ah! Oh. <laughs> he had a look that all he all, all he'd have to do is just kind of look out of the side of his eye at me with his face wrinkled up, and he wouldn't have to say a word. I go, yeah, I got it. I know, I know what you're saying. Uh, penalty. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's cool. Well, I hope you have yeah. that dream, and uh, if you do, please let us know. Keep us updated on on what you're doing and any new dreams you do have. We always appreciate hearing those from past guests. Yeah, thank Absolutely. you. Thank you for coming on. This has been really great. And just to hear your life story and to talk about so many amazing, you know, events and dreams. Uh, I think it's very helpful. And, you know, just uh, as well, uh, you know, the children's book that you're doing and to help people have that conversation, not only with their children, but, you know, hopefully with themselves and others. And, and you know, on a, on a other side is just the disenfranchised grief. And, and also, you know, for men, we, uh, we love to have people on. Obviously, we love to have people, but we also like to have uh, men on. We have a lot of women come on, but we'd like to have uh, men come on and talk about their their grief and stories. Because, I mean, you know, it's it's difficult for a lot of them, and I think it's so important to to say, "Hey, you can talk about this stuff. You can cry. You can have moments. This is important. You know, you don't have to wait. You know, you don't have to <laughs> hold it all in." Absolutely. No, that's good. And you're right. For men, you know, it's part of the way we've been enculturated, right? Um, big boys don't cry or, you know, buck up. <laughs> yeah, It'll be, be okay. strong. Be strong. Don't do this. Exactly. You know, you can do that, you know, whatever. And and that that probably also goes into how, how men and how some men have raised children like that. And and it's it's hopefully that's changing and, and we can have those conversations. You're going to say something, Josh? <laughs> no, I was just laughing at, at what you uh, you said to people. You said we had people on and or whatever. And I was like, in my in my mind, I was saying, yeah, we reached out to a couple famous uh, animals, but their agents are still getting back I was, to us. I was going to say, we have an alien on next week that we're interviewing. <laughs> Dolphin. We got for that. <laughs> uh, all right. So where can people find your book and find you, Gary? Oh, boy, thank you for asking me that. I've been interviewed on several things, and I've never mentioned it. It's like talking about my book and never tell them where they can find it. News broadcast of all things. How stupid is that? <laughs> my my book, My my Heart Sings a Sad Song, it's, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the major booksellers. But where I'd like you to buy it is at my website, which is Hope Spring, H-O-P-E-S-P-R-I-N-G, hopespring.biz. And the reason I want people to buy the book from me is then I, it establish, I can establish a relationship with them and we can become pen pals if they want to. I don't stalk customers, <laughs> but, but I, can, I, I get to listen to their stories. I get to be another person in their circle who cares. And I get to sign a note inside the book too. So hopespring.biz. That would be great. Thank you. That's wonderful. Uh, and thank you again for sharing that, uh, Gary. So, Please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. Uh, we did add a donation button and there are perks to those who donate. We would like to thank uh, those who that have donated and we really appreciate it. 
If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. We are on Twitter and Instagram, at Grief Dreams. And as always, we like to end the show with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself, you have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.